time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we have Professor David Cannon to talk about the future of voting rights reform after Democrats in Congress failed to pass comprehensive voting rights legislation in January. Now, that legislation combined parts of two bills. First, the Freedom to Vote Act, which would have established national standards for early voting and voting by mail in and abolished partisan gerrymandering. The second, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act would have restored parts of the Voting Rights Act that have been struck down by the Supreme Court over the last 10 years. President Biden and congressional Democrats had promised voting rights reform in response to a wave of laws in Republican-controlled states that have limited voting times as well as eliminating voting mechanisms, such as mail-in ballots and, my personal favorite, drop boxes. Now, thanks for joining us, Professor Cannon. There's so much to talk about, so... Let's just jump right in. Yeah, it's good to be with you. And yet, before we get into some of the specific details of some broader history and so on, I thought it'd be good just to talk a little bit more about that legislation that was shot down uh, in the Senate, as you mentioned, because it was really a very aggressive, very comprehensive voting rights bill that touched on not only these topics you mentioned, but some other things that I think were, would have been really great for access to voting including a national holiday for Election Day, something that people have talked about that for, for years, but they would have actually implemented that. Uh, it would have also addressed some of the issues concerning campaign finance, especially limiting dark money, which is the undisclosed huge contributions that come into our political system that would have required disclosure of, of dark money, uh, would have encouraged small donors by providing a six-to-one match for donations of up to $200, so you know, trying to limit the influence of big money in, in that way. Uh, it would have addressed that drop box issue that you referred to. That a lot of states are, you know, including Wisconsin, you know, trying to limit the use of drop boxes. And it would have uh, required that states allow that as an option in addition to requiring uh, no excuse mail-in voting. It uh, would have provided more accessibility to voters with disabilities. It would have made states that have a strict voter ID law, like Wisconsin, uh, ease up on that to allow a broader range of IDs, including student IDs, something that's you know really important to people here in, in Madison. So this was a really ambitious piece of legislation, the Freedom of the Vote Act, that unfortunately was shot down in the Senate. Woo. Yeah, that sure is a laundry list. I mean, I guess it's easy to forget about all the things that could have been in the rush of like the 24-hour news cycle, but that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, and it really is, you know, it's, Congress had never tried to do something that ambitious with voting rights. And uh, it's, it's just too bad that, you know, the filibuster, you know, basically, you know, couldn't be reformed to allow them a chance to, to pass that legislation. Let's transition a little bit by perhaps asking you to offer our listeners a brief historical background on the Voting Rights Act passed in the U.S. in the 1960s and the ways in which Supreme Court rulings over the last decade have diluted some voting rights protections. Just, you know, give us any kind of overview you think would help us as we prepare for the rest of this conversation. Exactly. Yeah, good question. So 
Yeah, as you know, the, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 as a way of, of trying to guarantee the real right to vote, especially in the South, to, to blacks that had been denied that right to vote through a variety of, of practices over the decades, ranging from you know grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, white primaries, just outright voter intimidation. I mean, this you know through the the late 1800s all the way up through you know the 1950s, blacks had legally been allowed to vote through the 15th Amendment Constitution after the Civil War, um, but they, in actual practice, really had been denied that right to vote through all of those techniques that I mentioned. And so what the Voting Rights Act did in 1965 is that it prohibited discrimination based on race and voting, and for the first time provided for enforcement of that by allowing federal marshals to actually go to voting precincts and make sure that blacks were being given the right to vote. And so just almost overnight, uh, you saw voter registration rates in the South going from you know, 10, 15% in some states to you know, 60, 70% just immediately. So it had a huge impact on, on access to voting, uh, or especially for, for blacks in, in the South, but more broadly as well uh, nationally. Now, one, so you asked about the Supreme Court as well and how their decisions have weakened the Voting Rights Act. This is something that has happened recently, but there was another really important case you know, back uh, in the late 70s that, unlike today, Congress did respond by overturning that Supreme Court case. And that case was Mobile versus Bolden in 1979. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that in order to prove that you had been discriminated against in voting, you had to prove that the law that you know, basically diluted your, your voting power was intentionally passed because of race. To, to be dis- so you had to prove the intent to discriminate. And so obviously, if you have to prove intent, you're basically saying that people who wrote the law were racist. That's really hard to do. And so Congress came back after that decision said, oh, no, that's not what we meant. We've always meant this to be an effect standard, not uh, intent. And so if you can just show that a law has a discriminatory impact, that it has the effect of making it harder for blacks to vote than whites to vote, then that is a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And so it was a bipartisan bill. This is back, you know, during the Reagan years, Ronald Reagan was, was president, uh, and the Republicans controlled the Senate. And you had like 90% of Congress voting to amend the Voting Rights Act to overturn that Supreme Court case. So as recently as the early 1980s, voting rights was still not a partisan issue. Whereas today, as we saw with the uh, the, the voting rights bill being shot down in the Senate just a couple weeks ago, it's become an, a very partisan issue where Democrats and Republicans are completely divided. But that 1982 Voting Rights Act amendment was super important for really strengthening the Voting Rights Act by overturning that Supreme Court case that set up that intent standard rather than effects, and it gave more explicit language of guaranteeing minority voters, uh, the language of the new Section 2 is an equal opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. And so that was a, a really important strengthening of the Voting Rights Act. Well, fast forward to more recently with the Shelby County versus Holder decision. That was the decision in 2013 that really gutted another important part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5. And it Section 5 was the part of the Voting Rights Act that mandated that states that had a discriminatory history when it came to voting, making it harder for racial minorities to, to vote, 
they had to pre-clear any change in a voting practice that could be discriminatory with the Justice Department ahead of time before it went into effect. So this is a very powerful tool to make sure that there wouldn't be discrimination in elections. So, for example, you know, if the you know, state of Georgia wanted to close down uh, voting precincts or voting places in black neighborhoods the way they're doing right now, they wouldn't have been able to do that because they'd have to get that approved ahead of time. So the Justice Department could step in and say, nope, sorry, can't do that. That clearly you know, has a discriminatory effect on, on black voters. Well, after the Shelby versus uh, Holder decision, Holden decision, it, it made it so uh, those states can do that now. They don't have to get that pre-cleared. Now, you can still try to sue after the fact under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is still still in place, but that's much harder than to, to do. because And also, the harm may have already been done at that point because you know, you've closed down the voting precincts, you've had the voter purges, you've had your strict voter ID law that's made it harder for uh, people to vote that don't have an ID and so on. And so the that really powerful part of the Voting Rights Act was struck down. Now, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, amendments that had been proposed, you mentioned in the introduction, that would have addressed that problem. It would have overturned the Shelby decision, basically, and like the earlier 82 amendments did, and said, no, we really you know, want Section 5 back. We think this is really important to have as part of protecting voting rights. And so it set up a new mechanism for allowing that to happen, but that too was shut down in the Senate. And so that, that did not pass as well. While we're on the topic, and I, I think this is a good time to ask, but what is the Republican counterargument for diluting parts of the Voting Rights Act, both philosophically, ideologically, as well as, you know, practically? Like, how might it provide a partisan advantage in elections in their view to, you know, make it harder to vote? Yeah, no, really good question, because, again, if you contrast the experience of 1982, there are these strong bipartisan majorities, you know, in a Republican-controlled Senate, and they passed, a, I would say, is even a more sweeping change than what was proposed in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So what happened? This wasn't like, that's not 100 years ago. That's not, you know, not that long ago that it didn't used to be as partisan. So why are the Republicans the change now to being so opposed to, you know, protecting voting rights for racial minorities, basically? Well, what it boils down to is a states' rights kind of argument. They say that this would nationalize the you know the election process and that the constitution says that you know states have the right to set the time manner and place of elections and therefore this is you know too much of a an overreach of federal power and you should let the the states decide these issues and the democrats response to that is well fine that's yeah we we can let the states do it as long as they're not discriminating on the basis of race and that's when we need to step in and and make sure that the people's rights aren't being violated. And so if, and under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, they actually have what's called a bailout provision, that if you can prove you have a clean record on voting rights uh, for a certain number of years, and so you could then not have to go through that preclearance process anymore. So the way that this John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, fix was going to work, it was only going to target those states that had a history of past discrimination they would be the ones who would have to pre-clear uh, any changes uh, with the Justice Department to make sure that it wasn't discriminatory. And once you have a clean record, you could then get out of that pre-clearance coverage. 
And so while it's true, this would be federal oversight of the election process with this you know, newly amended uh, part of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it was done to prevent the discrimination uh, against minority voters. And so while you know, it sounds like a principled argument based on states' rights, the, the underlying goal of trying, trying to prevent equal access to voting is something that you know, should take precedent. President Biden promised voting rights reform before he took office, but the Democratic push seems to have taken on a new urgency in the aftermath of the presidential election last year. So the big question is, how has the election landscape across the country changed? Can you give us some examples or insights into how some states have altered their election laws in ways that have impacted, you know, when and how citizens can vote? Right. Yeah. So. With the 2020 election, uh, you had a lot of states that uh, were saying that the states had gone too far in giving too much easy access to voting. But and this was obviously because of the COVID pandemic. You know, people didn't feel safe going in person to vote. And so a lot of states opened up the voting by mail option and made it a lot easier to vote by mail. Some of those changes were legislated to be temporary just because of COVID and would go away after 2020, but others, you know, change it to make it, you know, more permanently, um, you know, easier to vote by mail. And so quite a few of the changes in this last year, uh, and by the way, there were something like 19 states that passed 34 different laws that made it harder to vote in 2021. So this was like the most uh, that we've seen in the last decade. The Brennan Center has been tracking this every year. And they said this was by far the most uh, changes in restrictive voting laws in, in the last decade. And so in addition to doing things like cutting back on mail voting, cutting back on drop boxes, they also are doing things like making it easier to purge voter rolls. To, and this is something that, you know, that uh, so election officials do need to do every year to make sure that people who died or people who have moved are no longer on the voting rolls. So it is something that you have to do every year. But the problem is that a lot of states have done it in a way that is overly aggressive, that actually kicks off people that should be able to vote. And so that's another thing that some states have done is to you know, have these really aggressive voter purges. They also are doing things like you know, closing uh, voter precincts in some areas that are, are more, again, heavily minority voting. And then to me, one of the most troubling something you've seen in Georgia, Texas, a few other states, where they're making it both harder to be an election official by actually putting felony charges against potentially against election workers if they step out of line in any way to, according to the you know the statute, uh, you know make it easier for people to vote when they weren't supposed to. And so this is basically a form of harassment uh, against election officials to like you know try to uh, make it so it's harder for people to to vote again. And then also in those same states, they are making the the process of contesting elections, you know, after an election like in 2020, where a lot of the results were contested in quite a few of the battleground states, including Wisconsin, to make that process more partisan. So make it easier for partisans to step in and challenge the results than it is today. And that's another thing that's really you know, quite disturbing and potentially you know, could lead to you know, some of the things that were stopped by the courts in 2020 
make it easier for uh, election results to be overturned, basically. So what I think we're getting at is that voting by mail and early voting are seen by progressives as necessary for fair elections and are seen as progressive measures. But are we correct that the evidence isn't clear that voting by mail increases turnout or even helps one party over another? The evidence is clear on the second part, that overall, if you look at the history of voting by mail, there is no clear partisan advantage, that in recent elections, Democrats have been more heavily using voting by mail. That was almost entirely because of Donald Trump. You know, Trump, you know, was, uh, you know, almost every day saying, you know, voting by mail is fraudulent, don't do it. And so a lot of Republicans who had voted by mail their whole lives, all of a sudden, oh, I better not do this. President Trump told me not to. And so, yes, in 2020, for sure, there were a lot more Democrats who voted by mail than Republicans. But again, that's, that was entirely a Trump effect. And the fact that he, in fact, he had a lot of, of like Republican consultants telling him, you know, please stop saying that. Like Republicans like to vote by mail, too. And we're just going to hurt ourselves if we don't, you know, encourage our, our voters to vote by mail as well. And so if you just throw out 2020 and look at the election history before that, there really isn't much of a partisan difference in Democrats versus Republicans benefiting from voting by mail. Um, early voting uh, also is in terms of its impact on, on turnout, has a kind of a, a mixed effect that early voting, if it's combined with same-day registration, so you can go in, register to vote, and, ma- and vote at the same time, that does increase voter turnout. If you have them separate, and so you have an uh, early voting deadline that's actually you know, before a registration deadline, you can't do them both at the same step, then that doesn't have an impact on, on turnouts. It's a little complicated there. But on the partisan effect, it's clear that it's really not a a big advantage for one party or the other. There's that secondary uh, fact that some have argued that voting by mail and early voting is more open to subversion than voting in person. And I remember uh, I remember when Madison's democracy in the park was just getting slammed left and right for being, you know, this way for people to just, you know, vote repeatedly or hand in, you know, other people's ballots as their own. But what's your take based on data and evidence? Is this kind of voting really, you know, more dangerous or more open to tampering than others? Well, so the the, the biggest problem in voting is voter error. And and there, the, the problem with mail-in voting it's not voter fraud. It's not that people are stuffing the ballot box and voting six times. That's, that's, that doesn't happen by voting by mail. What does happen um, is those people make mistakes. Like they don't get the witness signature on there. They don't have the address of the, the witness you know, on the, the ballot. And so the error rate in voting is much higher in voting by mail than it is voting in person. Because especially in Wisconsin, where we have election day registration, if you, you know, go in to vote on election day and there's something wrong in your voter file somehow that there's, you know, some missing information, you can fix it right there on the spot. And so, you know, there really is very, uh, is a lot less of a chance for making a mistake when you're voting in person. And in fact, let's say another kind of voter error is just filling out the ballot wrong. Like, but, you know, sometimes people will vote for two candidates for the same office. You know, you can't do that. You got to pick one, <laughs> but people do that. But if you do that when you're voting in person, you slide your ballot in to the machine, the optical scan machine, and it'll kick it back out and say, sorry, invalid vote, and you can go fix it. Okay, And so that's why voting in person actually, I think, is, is much better uh, overall for, for voter security, 
is that you're more likely to have voters be able to have a valid vote counted, whereas voting by mail, they're more likely to, to make errors. Now, in terms of fraud, there's you know, almost no evidence of systematic voter fraud on voting by mail. I mean, there, there are, have been a few cases, like there was a North Carolina House race a couple cycles ago where a House Republican candidate actually did have a, a bunch of ballots that were stolen and were mailed in, but it's, it was caught. And they actually threw out the election and made them rerun the election. And so any efforts at large-scale fraud like that are relatively easy to detect. And so the whole idea that elections are being stolen through you know, mail-in ballots is, is simply not the case. So let's get into what happened a little bit ago in Congress. Why did Democrats fail to pass this year's voting rights legislation, even with the majority in the Senate? Well, so we have to remember that majority is 50-50 the Senate. So they have no margin for error. If there's one senator who defects, it's not going to pass. Now, and that's even best case scenario. The other problem, of course, is the filibuster. And so for all major legislation, with two exceptions, nominations by the president now are not subject to the filibuster. So like the Supreme Court position now that President Biden's going to be able to fill, you know, that's done by a simple majority vote. And then the reconciliation process on the budget side can done, be done by majority vote. Everything else, if a senator wants to filibuster a bill, they can say, sorry, this is being filibustered. And all of a sudden, you have to have 60 votes to get that to pass. Okay, and this is something that's been you know, around in the Senate now for over a century. And the sort of traditionalists in the institution said, you know, it's crucial for protecting the minority party's rights. And that's why Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema said, we're not going to change that tradition. Because in order to be able to pass the voting rights forms, you would have had to get rid of the filibuster for those votes. And the majority party could have done that. And they have done that in the past to change the rules, basically. And where, you know, Manchin and Cinema were in favor of the voting rights changes. In fact, the, you know, Chuck Schumer had like postponed everything initially to give Manchin some time to try to work a deal with some Republicans to try to get you know, 60 votes to support it. But he was unsuccessful in, in doing that. So they tried to push this through anyway by reforming the filibuster. But Manchin and Cinema said, sorry, we're not going to do it. And so without those two on board, they couldn't change the rules. And so they weren't able to get this passed by their their slim 51 to 50 you know margin with you know the vice president breaking a tie, basically. Joe Manchin has criticized the timing of the legislation, saying Biden told voters what they were seeing in some states was Jim Crow on steroids. But then Biden didn't really have the bill up for nearly a year. So why didn't the Biden administration push for this legislation sooner? And might it have been more successful if they had? No, I, I don't think it would have. And in fact, they, they did try to, to roll this out earlier version past the House. And Manchin made it clear that he thought there were too many things in that bill that he couldn't support. And so that's when Schumer kind of pulled it back and said, OK, here, you work on it then um, and see if you can get some Republicans on board. Because that's what Manchin said. I, you know, I really can't support this if it has you know, uh, even you know, some of these more aggressive changes in it. And so the delay was because of Manchin. And, and so that's why they gave it more time when it became clear that they couldn't get those 10 Republicans on board to support it, 
and combine them with Manchin and Cinema's refusal to change the filibuster, that's why it fell apart. And so if Biden would have tried to push early on and say, like, right away, this is priority number one, and we're going to try to get this passed right away, it couldn't have happened because Manchin and Cinema still would not have budged on the filibuster. You would have had even you know, stronger opposition on the Republican side in terms of you know, people you know, really you know, being opposed. Whereas if they would have been able to get rid of the filibuster, you might have gotten a couple of Republicans to support this version. So, so yeah, had they tried earlier, it still wouldn't have passed. What can we expect next for voting rights legislation at that federal level? Well, so I think most of everything that's in these two bills we talked about, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that would have restored that part of the Voting Rights Act, the Section 5, uh, and then the, the Freedom to Vote Act that had all those other provisions we talked about, I think that all of those are dead. I don't think that those are coming back in this Congress. They had their chance. But the one thing that still does have a lot of bipartisan discussion is reforming the 1887 Electoral Count Act. And this was the, the law that was at the center of the challenges to the 2020 election when you had the various states, including Wisconsin, you know, ready to challenge the electoral count um, in Congress, you know, to ratify the results of the 2020 election. And this is the whole thing, you know, behind the January 6th insurrection, you know, where that's the night that they were, you know, counting the electoral college votes, you know, in, in Congress. And the whole thing about President Trump putting pressure on Mike Pence to basically say that, yeah, these challenges were legitimate to overturn the results of the election. So the whole mechanism to make that happen is this 1887 law that was passed to, to try to clarify the process for how Congress counts those electoral votes. Well, this law is a mess. Like, it's it's really unclear. There are things in it that absolutely need to be clarified to say that you really can't do what the Trump supporters tried to do. Like, that's, like, totally illegitimate to try to overturn the results of legitimate elections. That's something that shouldn't be able to be done on the floor of the Congress when they're counting the votes. And so there's quite a bit of support on the Republican side for trying to clarify that language to make sure that an election actually couldn't be stolen, you know, when it comes to counting the electoral vote. So I think there's still some chance that that change could happen. We've been talking about efforts to combat voter suppression in some states, but it also seems like we see more and more attempts at election subversion. Is that a fair assessment? And you can be completely honest. Well, yeah, I'm just every day now for the last uh, couple of weeks, there have been more and more accounts coming out about this effort to challenge the results of the electoral college votes. And again, Wisconsin, this was in the news again yesterday about efforts here like almost immediately after the election was over, it was clear that Trump had lost Wisconsin. At the same time, they were asking for recounts and everything. There's a, you know, memos have been released now about how they were laying the groundwork for trying to have these alternative slates of electors that, you know, were people that, you know, were Republicans saying they would vote for Donald Trump, even if Joe Biden carried Wisconsin by more than 20,000 votes. And so this was happening not just in Wisconsin, but in Arizona, in Georgia in Pennsylvania, in all these you know, contested states where the result was fairly close, Michigan as well, you had these efforts behind the scenes to, to try to literally steal the election. You know, Trump says that 
you know, the election was stolen when, in fact, he lost the election. But this is the way that, you know, the Trump supporters actually were trying to lay the groundwork and then eventually on January 6th, you know, steal the election. But, you know, thank goodness Mike Pence all along, you know, saying, no, I can't do this. Like, I don't have the ability to, you know, be able to overturn the results of, of the election. And so you're absolutely right that there is more and more evidence coming out now that there was a, a really pretty serious effort among Trump supporters to to try to have these alternative slates of electors that would then be challenged on the floor of Congress on January 6th when they were counting the votes. Do you think Democrats who are up against a small but significant portion of the electorate who still believe the election was stolen from Trump need to be engaged more with this phenomenon of election subversion, especially as we approach the 2022 midterms? Yeah, I think that this will definitely be an issue in the 2022 midterms. I think that people you know, will be reminded of, of what happened on January 6th. The hope is that the commission that's you know, looking into this will you know, file a report sometime this summer. Uh, we'll know more about the facts of you know, what, what happened, who knew what, when, you know, what the, the efforts are, were behind the scenes to, to try to subvert the election. And so I think this, this will be uh, uh, an issue in the 2022 midterms. And, and I think, especially in Republican primaries, there seems to be right now something of a litmus test you know, going on with the Trump supporters, is you have to buy into this idea of the big lie, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And if you don't, you'll be you know, having a challenge to your reelection efforts. In fact, just yesterday, House Republicans, uh, in an unprecedented move, decided to actually endorse and support and fund Liz Cheney's opponent in Wyoming. Um, to do that to a you know, sitting incumbent of your own party, you know, we haven't seen something like that, I don't think, ever, the modern house. And so there, there is this you know, purge going on right now within the Republican Party to get out you know, all people who are trying to stand up and say, hey, look, this was not okay what we tried to do. They want everyone to, to buy into this idea that the election was stolen from, from Donald Trump. I know we've talked about a lot of things that would have seemed strange, maybe extreme, just three years ago. But ultimately, has the 2020 election, the big lie, and January 6th changed the way political scientists study elections? Well, one thing I can tell you for sure is there's a lot more interest in the topic of election administration. So I'm the editor of a journal, the Election Law Journal. And this was, you know, it was a good little niche journal that you know, published articles you know, every quarter, you know, every three months uh, as an issue come out. And on, on different topics of election law, a lot of articles written by law professors, a lot of articles written by political scientists who are you know, studying you know, some like, impact of some voting law on turnout or you know, all kinds of issues that the journal's been around for 25 years. Well, after the 2020 election, interest in our topic just skyrocketed. Like we had a huge increase in submissions of a lot of new interesting research being done on the question of election administration, how we run elections, what are the impact of, of different laws, you know, voter security, how can we make, you know, elections secure? Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think it has generated quite a bit more academic interest in this topic. It seems like we are in this strange space in American politics. Well, you know, it might be good for people who write about voting rights, but 
you know, we're in a space where some progressives on the left believe a failure of voting rights reform legislation is contributing to the erosion of American democracy. And at the same time, some on the right believe attempts at reform compromise the legitimacy of elections. How do you see this all playing out over the 2022 midterms and the 2024 presidential elections, I guess? Yeah, that's a really good question, because it it is something that does reveal the deep partisan divide in our country that, you know, something like access to voting that, you know, just, you know, not even 20 years ago, I would say probably about 10 years ago, was still you know, not a partisan issue that you first started seeing, you know, some partisan divide on this with some of the early voter ID laws. And those, you know, started coming around probably a little over 10 years ago. And increasingly, you know, since that time, access to voting has become a, a deeply partisan issue where, as you said, you know, on the Democratic side of the debate, you have people wanting more access to voting, making it easier to vote. The Republican side of the debate, you want to focus on security of election administration, trying to prevent voter fraud. And this, of course, all came to a head and was just heightened you know, because of the 2022 presidential election and the charges of the election being stolen. And so it's just this toxic mix right now of partisan politics uh, on an issue that, you know, really, you know, shouldn't, we should all be wanting to have a stronger democracy. Uh, there are ways of both having more access to voting and making sure we have election integrity and, and limiting, um, you know, any potential for, for voter fraud. It doesn't have to be an either or. And take one good example of something we talked about just a little bit earlier, drop boxes. So you know, here in Wisconsin, we've had lawsuits challenging the, the use of drop boxes as a way of allowing people who are voting by mail to have a more secure way of putting your, your ballot, you know, in a box to, to be counted. And, and so here's a, just a really good example of how that should not be a partisan issue. Because it both provides more access to voting. It, it's it's nice to be able to you know go by your you know your public library or, or wherever the drop boxes are and and put your ballot in that drop box that's dedicated to just having ballots in it. That's much more secure than dropping it in a mailbox. If you put it in a mailbox, that's going to go through the postal system. We've all had things get lost in the mail, right? I mean, things get lost in the mail all the time. And so if you're a voter. What's more secure? Going into a drop box, you know, is only going to be picked up by an election official. No one else gets to touch that box. Often they have security cameras, 24-7 security cameras on these drop boxes, so they're not going to be tampered with. And so if you're a Republican, you should say, hey, great, election security. This is, is a much better way of voting than what they're, what we have uh, is uncontested, which is you get to drop your, you know, absentee ballot in a mailbox. Well, the drop box is much more secure than a, a mailbox. And so that, that's a good example of something that should not be part of them. It both provides more access to voting and is more secure than something that already is widely used in every state, which is you know, voting by mail. Uh, and so I just, you know, it'd be nice if we could sort of ratchet down the, you know, the partisan rhetoric and figure out things we can do to both make for better access and better election security. That's so fun to think about too. I mean, like I said, I'm a huge fan of the Madison voter boxes that are basically just like three layers of steel on all sides and they put them in front of banks and, you know, fire departments. 
Exactly. And my mailbox sometimes just falls off the falls off my front porch. So, <laughs> right. you know, we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I've learned a lot. It's kind of nice to go more in depth than just the quick, quick, you know, politifact to whatever an elected official has said today. But has there any has there been anything that we've missed that you would like to say now that we have this you know moment of coming together? Well, I guess the one topic that we touched on just briefly in the intro that might be worth just a, a few more comments is the whole topic of partisan gerrymandering. Because mm-hmm. that's something that also would have been addressed by that law that was, you know, proposed law that was shot down in the Senate. Uh, they would have made it much harder to have the partisan gerrymanders like we've seen in Wisconsin and, and all around the country. But here, because here's another good example of something where this should not be a partisan issue because both parties do this when they're in control of drawing the maps. So, you know, every 10 years after the census, population shifts around in the country. And so you have to, you know, redraw the boundaries for legislative districts to account for the population changes. So whichever party is in control of that process of drawing the maps will always try to draw the maps to help their party. So if the Democrats are in power, they'll have a gerrymander to help their party. If the Republicans are in power, they'll draw the maps to help their party. So this, again, is not a, a red or blue issue. It's not a D or R issue. This, this is something that both parties do it. So anyone who cares about fair elections and a stronger democracy should be in favor of reforming how we draw legislative district maps in redistricting. And the, the idea that parties should be able to you know, draw these maps to their partisan advantage is just inherently unfair. And so you get things like in, in Wisconsin this last round where Republicans controlled the process, where they, in three of the five elections, you know, 10-year cycle every two years, they actually lost a majority of the votes statewide for state legislative races, but got about two-thirds of the seats. And so you have you know, one party you know, gaining only like 48% of the vote and getting 68% of the seats. Like, how is that fair? Um, and that happens... Yeah, and again, this isn't just a Republican thing. Uh, just this week, New York announced their map for the congressional districts, and it's a classic partisan gerrymander done by the Democrats that they, you know, redrew the lines in a way that they're going to get eighty-five percent of the House seats in New York, probably. You know, New York's a Democratic state, but it's not eighty-five percent Democratic, that's for sure. And so, again, both parties do this, and so anyone who has an interest in stronger democracy and fair elections should be in favor of taking the power of redrawing district lines out of the hands of politicians and giving it to nonpartisan commissions to actually come up with maps. The way they do in Iowa and a bunch of other states now, about a dozen states, have had this reform where they take the power of drawing lines out of the hands of politicians and make it a more nonpartisan or bipartisan process. So that's something that I think would be good to eventually have nationwide and again, that one should not be a partisan issue because both parties do it. Yeah, we have one in Wisconsin, I think, but their their maps are more like suggestions, you know. Well, right, the People's Commission. Yeah, Governor Evers you know, put that in when he you know uh, got into office. He set up this People's Commission, but it was just it didn't have any power. It was just yeah. as you know, it was just to make recommended maps, and of course, the legislature ignored it. And in Wisconsin now. The, the courts, the state Supreme Court will end up drawing our maps because, you know, the, the governor vetoed the Republican map. And so now it's it's in the, the Supreme Court to draw our map for us. A beautiful limbo that maybe we'll, we'll discuss in a future episode. At least I would like to. That'd be great. 
Well, we'd like to ask you uh, one last fun question to kind of leave us on a happy note after, you know, all the all the gerrymandering. I would like to ask you, you know, I'm looking around for some lunch spots where I can grab food around campus, even on State Street. Where is your favorite spot to grab a quick lunch? Well, I would have to say that at least on our end of State Street, Mediterranean Cafe, I think, is, is my go-to place for Middle Eastern food. You know, great falafel, some, you know, good... Uh, you know, Euro sandwich. Uh, so that's a good place on our end of State Street. And then for breakfast, my go-to place always is the Sunroom Cafe. I They were shut down. They were a victim yeah. of COVID. Yeah. Like in, what, maybe early 2021 or something, they shut down. I've heard they reopened, though. And I guess they still have their breakfasts. And I haven't been there since they reopened. But that, that place was around forever. I think they had been there for like 40 years or something. And uh, they're they're open again. And I haven't been back yet since they opened. So hopefully that'll be like the old sunroom. So that was a great place, our end of State Street as well. You know what? I never got to get over there when it was open. And I didn't know that it was back from the dead. So you know what? I'll have to yeah. make my way that way. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Thank you for the solid recommendation. Thank you for talking today. It's been lovely to have you. Good to be with you. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.